You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. While you were skipping stones, building forts, and flying kites, I was missing school and all my Saturday nights. Other kids were climbing trees and rolling down hills. I was singing songs to pay my family's bills. Little me. Hello, it's Mark Tuminelli, and welcome back to Little Me Growing Up Broadway. We have had almost a six-month break, and I have missed doing this so much. So thank you all as you sort of waited for me to get some new episodes, all of you billions of people out there in the dark. Um, But I'm back, and we're going to do some new episodes. I took a break to work on a movie, which I can't wait to talk more about and get some guests from that film on the podcast later this year. So stay tuned for that. But I am back today with a really exciting guest, and you're going to love this episode. We broke it down, we talked about everything, and you're going to learn a lot. So uh, my guest today is Miss Laura Bell Bundy. At the age of nine, Laura Bell made her stage debut at Radio City Music Hall in The Christmas Spectacular. Since then, she's originated the stage roles of Tina in Ruthless, Amber in the original Broadway cast of Hairspray, Elle Woods in Legally Blonde, the musical, a role she received her first Tony nomination for. She also played the role of Glinda in Wicked on Broadway. She received an ovation nomination for the role of Charity in Reprise's Sweet Charity. She appeared in over 100 episodes of television, including roles on Perfect Harmony, Good Behavior, How I Met Your Mother, Heart of Dixie, Fuller House, Documentary Now, AJ and the Queen, and Anger Management. Her film credits include Dreamgirls, Jumanji, Life with Mikey, Adventures of Huck Finn, and the award-winning Beauty Mark, among many others. Her albums, Another Piece of Me, Aiken and Shaken, and the brand new Women of Tomorrow are available everywhere you listen to music. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my wonderful conversation with Broadway's greatest, Laura Bell Bundy. Oh my God, I'm here with Laura Bell Bundy. How are you? <laughs> Fine, how are you? Do you see I got like fake excited, but it's r- actual <laughs> true excitement. <laughs> Um, where in the world are you? What is happening? Are we allowed to talk about the project you're filming yeah, now? Okay. Yeah, I'm actually in my dressing room right now. Um, I am filming a show called Fairly Odd Parents, Ooh. which is based on an animated series that was on Nickelodeon for many years. And uh, it's about these fairy godparents, these fairly odd parents. But they're doing a live action version of the television show. And I play the mom of one kid and the stepmom of another kid. And it's basically, well, you would know this reference, I think, uh, like um, an American version of Patsy from AbFab. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> when do we get, when do we get this show? When can I start watching this? Well, I, it's on Paramount Plus. Okay. They, they do not have an official launch date. I've heard maybe December. I've heard heard January. Um, but I think by January, the show will definitely have premiered on Paramount plus. So, so yeah, it's fun. It's zany. It's very, like the show is very theatrical. I'm singing and dancing in the show. Um, it's, it's really fun. And all all the things, well, we can't wait to have that. And thank you for taking a little time out of your, uh, schedule today to chat with me. You've been like one of the number one people, one of the number one, that's English. You are really legitimately in the top five people I wanted to talk to (laughs) on this podcast because you have grown up doing this. This has been your life and you know, you have a different perspective on this than a lot of performers who come into this as adults. 
mean, you have seen this industry from every angle and I'm really excited to like jump in and talk about your story. I also have to thank you. And I always do it every year in October. I thank you for coming on board for Broadway Workshop's very first masterclass, which was almost 14 years ago. And you legitimately like started my business that has survived all of the pandemics and ups and downs and all of that. And I am so grateful to you for uh, teaching those first few Broadway workshop classes that really sort of uh, set us off in such an incredible journey. So thank you for doing that. You're welcome. And you know, what's interesting about that is that doing that actually showed me that I had something to offer to young people. Um, And it, it was the beginning of me actually working on creating a curriculum And sort of teaching my process, not only teaching my process, but examining my own process. Like what tools have I been using for all these years? And how can I whittle this down in a language that that will make sense to a young person? Um, And how can I teach that? So so I think in a way we kind of you kind of gave me an opportunity to to do that. And um and well, that was the beginning. It was the beginning. It was the beginning for but and it was also crazy because you were doing eight shows a week at Legally Blonde, and you were teaching on a Sunday morning before a two show day. And uh, I'll never forget that as just being like, this girl is a machine, and she is getting it done, and it it's just always meant a lot to me. So thank you. You're so welcome. All right, let's go back to the beginning. Dun dun dun. All right. <laughs> so what were you doing around the house that made your mom be like, this kid's got to get on stage? I need to hear about the initial germs of this talent around, around your living room. So I think it was before that. I think I came out of her and she was like, there she is my miss America. I mean, she, she had, she had sort of stars in her eyes. And I think the reason that she did is because my aunt had been Miss Kentucky in semifinals and Miss America. And she had taught herself to play the piano and sing. And my grandmother, I mean, my grandfather um, was, he was a on broadcast television. He did the news and the sports. And prior to that, he had he had uh, been on the radio. And during the fifties, when if you were a radio announcer, you were also singing jingles. You were hosting concerts. You were you were often a singer as a as a DJ, a host, and stuff like that. So he was a singer with a gorgeous voice. Sounded like Bing Crosby. That kind of music and showmanship existed in the family before I was born. And I think my grandfather, he had had opportunities to have certain things happen for him. And, uh, and he chose family and he chose staying in one place in Lexington, Kentucky. And, and he kind of started to investigate the technical side of, of how, television was made as he got older too. He um, ended up working for the local PBS station and producing and being an engineer and all this cool stuff. But uh, my mom, when, when, uh, when I was little, I don't know what it was, you know, I, I, I did take to music. I did sing on key. Um, I was in my dance. I, I started taking dance at two and a half. And I guess the class started uh, for three-year-olds. And my mom was like, listen, there is nothing that those three-year-olds can do that my two and a half-year-old can't do. Come on. <laughs> and so they let me into this class. There's so many of stories like that that go my that way. You know? All of it. 
<laughs> and so I took this class at two and a half. I got into the dance class. And then as years went by, um, I think maybe I was five, four or five years old. I was like singing while uh, everybody was dancing, right? So they would turn on the music for the dance class and I would just be singing the song really loud. And um, almost in a disruptive way, I think. And so my dance teacher said, you know, she's singing every time I turn on this thing. She's kind of got a good voice. You know, I feel like you should really like lean into this. And my mom was already ready to do that because uh, my aunt was a singer and my grandfather. So she put me in singing lessons. And then when I was five, she entered me into this pageant. What's the name of this pageant? It was the Miss Pee Wee Hemisphere pageant. Mm-hmm. I've read about it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did the local, can, you know, the local town city version. I and I won the pageant. Then I went on to uh, win the state of Kentucky version. And so after that, we had to go down to Miami Beach, Florida, where the national competition was. And it was the Miss Hemisphere pageant. It was, it really was the one Diane Sawyer did. And there's a whole <laughs> joke about that on uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous. Drop Dead Gorgeous, yes. right? That's it all re- I'm picturing as you explain is just. It really is the one <laughs> Diane Sawyer did. Okay. And, and so, um, so I go down and my division is Pee Wee. So Miss Pee Wee Hemisphere, they're all like five-year-olds. It's from, it's basically the Miss America pageant for five-year-olds. I mean, we had talent, we had interview, we had evening gown, we had bathing oh suit. I mean, bathing suit for five-year-olds. But, um, but, you know, I mean, I had like, you know, my tan, I think I even maybe, you know, my mom was like, it's okay if you get a little sun without the sunscreen. Um, and I remember I had... Uh, I had been exposed to my cousins. They had uh, chicken pox or someone they knew had had chicken pox. And my mom was terrified I was going to get chicken pox because it was the big wake of the pageant. And she like preemptively put me in a vino oatmeal bath, thinking that like that would in some way prevent me from getting (laughs) chicken pox. And really that is just something that you do so children don't itch and it made me itch i was just like standing in my evening gown (laughs) scratching my leg because it was so damn dry from the now how did you do on in this pageant i won i know that's amazing i won the pageant tell the people what they gave you as the winner (laughs) of the peewee version of this pageant i I received a new car (laughs) so funny (laughs) five years old. I have a picture of this car too. It's like my mom is sitting in the car and I'm standing by it. It's the ugliest thing I knew at the time. I was like, at five, I was like, this is an ugly car. Um, it was a brand new car, but it was, it was like a Chevy Chevrolet, you know, it was like a, it was like a hatchback. And, um, I think my mom was like, (laughs) we'll take the money. Um, (laughs) and then, uh, you know, when I had to do like song and dance was my was my uh, talent. I sang, I'm looking over a four leaf clover. And I, and I wore this like green spandex with, with sequined patches of four leaf clovers all over it. And like a full unitard and very eighties. I looked like John Bonet really. And, uh, and it was like, I'm looking over a four leaf clover that I've never seen before. You know, that was my little thing. Pot kind of with like a slight Southern accent. And, um, and so when the pageant and a couple months later, 
uh, the pageant director calls and says, there's an opportunity to go to New York City, all expenses paid. Um, the Phil Donahue show is doing this show about children's pageants. And uh, my mom was like, oh my God, we got to go. We're going to go to Kmart. We're going to go to New York. We're going to go to New York City. So we went, we stayed at the Sheridan Hotel on 7th Avenue. Lovely. There were... Uh, the one across from the old Sheridan that had a pool in it. I remembered that because she found that out. We went swimming there. But so we stayed there. We went to Lindy's and got cheesecake, you know, the whole thing. And then we go to this pad, this uh, Phil Donahue show. And it's not a celebration of children's pageants. It oh, is God. an expose. And so they bring out a child psychologist they, I do my little walk on the runway. The audience turns on us and it, they're like, I can't believe you're doing this to your daughter. She's like a wind up toy, blah, blah, blah. What did your mother do? My mother st- stood up and she defended herself. And she's like, my daughter loves this. You know, she loves doing this. And, uh, and she knows how to act when the camera comes on. Cause they were making some comment of like, we were like all happy when the cameras were on. And then <laughs> We were sort of like relaxed and like, hmm, you know, when the cameras were off. So my mom was like, she knows what to do. She's done commercials. Come on. (laughs) She knows when the camera's rolling. She knows when it's not. And so she defended that. And then I went to grab for Phil Donahue's mic. And he was like, oh, this little girl wants to say something. And I got on and I said, I love pageants. I love modeling. I love doing commercials. Oh, my God. And, you know, it was, and it was really sweet. It was like, I love gadgets. <laughs> oh my God. I, we have to find, you have that video. I need to see it immediately. I do. So it it's was, on my Instagram. It's right, on my gonna, Instagram. We're going to, we're going to reshare you can it. See it. You see there's, it, it's on my Instagram. There's like a little girl that looks like fully done up in the eighties pageant. That's me. And you just press play and you'll see that clip. But, um, you know, I remember that was the first, now I know that the feeling I felt was shame. But that was the first like time I really felt like shame and embarrassment because I didn't know there was anything wrong with what I was doing. I just thought I was a princess and it was a way to like throw my energy into something and like be silly and play. And really, I think what I was doing, I think really I was a mimic and I had seen all these videos of my aunt and these other women in pageants and I was just impersonating them. All I was doing was I was just an impersonator. I really was a gay man trapped in the body of John Bonet and I'm doing drag. Hey, that's, that's the quote. Um, end of episode. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs> you know, just like doing doing a drag show on a pageant. I mean, that's what I was doing. That's that's who I am. So you're you born know? to do. Yeah. And so I was just impersonating and um, and mimicking anything I saw. And I think, you know, that, that, uh, I'll, I'll tell you how the whole thing ended up starting my career, but I, but on a side note, the, the mimic element is really how I learned to do everything. I learned to sing that way. I learned to act that way. I absorbed what I saw all around me from my experiences. I picked up on accents really quickly and I was just sort of like a sponge, just sort of like observing my environment and then and then showing that environment back to the environment, you know, like being a mirror for the environment. Um, and that, that's how I, that's how I learned. That's how I became an actor. And that's how the whole thing started. I think 
just because I was able to, uh, to mimic. But so after this, my mom goes, <clears throat> she's all like, you know, I cannot believe they made us come all the way out here. And she drags my little tuchus all the way over to Ford Modeling Agency because she is going to turn, you know, shine this turd <laughs> and um, try to, what my father used to say, and I don't know if the children are listening, but, um, you know, turn chicken shit into chicken salad. I love and it. so, so she drives me over and she's like, I'm here to meet with the children's division. And there's a guy at the front and he's like, oh, ma'am, do you have an appointment? <laughs> And she's, she says, um, well, I sent in a picture and they said any time that we were in New York, we should come and go, ma'am, you need an appointment. Well, this is Little Miss Pee Wee Hemisphere and we're only going to be here today. So if they're going to meet her, they're going to need to meet her now. <laughs> I mean, the balls on this woman, the I balls. Must, she's amazing. She was like Aaron Brockovich meets <laughs> Mama Rose. Great. You know, and so meets Dolly Parton. So she, they let us up to the top floor of Ford modeling agency, which is the children's division. I mean, I felt like I walked up a hundred flights of steps. It was, and there was no elevator there because they like to keep the models thin, you know? <laughs> and so we, we get to the top. And certainly no snacks. <laughs> no snacks. <laughs> so you get to the top, you you get, get a- to the top. I'm like turning, they're like, show your front, show your profile, show your other side. And I was just talking and chatting and blah, blah, blah. And they pull out a contract and they sign me to a five-year con- uh, contract right on the spot. And my mom said, well, I, I mean, we live in Kentucky. I mean, she didn't quite, she wasn't prepared for what if the answer was yes. And they said, well, there's this thing called the summer kids. And when you're a summer kid, you come from wherever you live and your kid is out of school and you spend the summer in New York and you do modeling jobs and you're available. And so my mom was, and she's a perfect size five and blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, well, great. Um, We can do it. Now she had not talked to my father about this at all. She was, she and my father had business together. So she, she was just like, we're going to do it. You know, stars in her eyes and very excited. And, uh, and then I started coming up to New York. That first summer, I had turned I turned six, and what would happen is I would come to New York and I would do these modeling jobs, and then I started to get represented in acting, but I was only doing commercials. And my mom, through those connections, found and through taking me to Broadway Dance Center, found teachers for me. So I would go to Broadway Dance Center. Then she, mom, then my mom would corner one of the teachers to teach me privately. Of and then she found out also, you know, I was obsessed with Les Mis. Oh, I have to finish this story. Oh my God. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I, this is a full circle thing. Full circle, so, everyone. Here we go. So that same day, okay, Donahue get Ford the signed contract from Ford Modeling Agency. We leave and my mom takes me to Times Square and walks into the Palace Theater and s- to Starlight Express, I've never seen a Broadway show, and says, what's your best and cheapest ticket? And we get like a nosebleed seat in a box. I just remember there was a pole, and I s- remember smelling the metal of the pole on the balcony while I walked. 
watched the show. Starlight Express. And that was my first Broadway show. And it was in the same theater Legally Blonde was in. Oh my God. That is a very full circle moment. Okay, so which so- is... Yeah, keep going. <laughs> Which is what I want to say is that sometimes mortifying, horrible experiences where you experience shame for the first time in your life actually are the beginning of your fate and destiny. So you wound up booking the Radio City Christmas show as your first big New York job. Yes, after like three years. Okay. And so your did your family come all here for that that Christmas? How did that how did that first Christmas go? So my mom and I ended up moving to New York City for that year. We only thought it was going to be a year. It ended up becoming more years. But uh, I was nine and my father came up for like, you know, the breaks for the holidays. But really, it was just my mom and I in an apartment. And I went to the professional children's school, um, you know, to go to school for that whole year. And the Christmas show must have felt like a really big deal all of a sudden to be on stage at the Radio City Music Hall, you know nutcrackering it up for 10 minutes and whatever else they make the kids do in that show. Yeah. So you had to, I had to be Claire in the nutcracker. I also had to be one of the key, uh, the kids in the Christmas story, Charles Dickens play. And then I had to be like ancillary characters throughout this whole thing. It was really, really fun. And there's a great story to this. So this is another Lorna Bell Bundy. All right, Lorna Bell Bundy. Here we go. (laughs) So the Christmas Spectacular is holding the auditions and they, they, they put out the breakdown for an 11 year old. And again, my mom goes, well, there is nothing an 11 year old can do that my nine year old can't do. And at the time I was freelancing between agents and I don't know if you know how this works, but they, I don't even know if they still do it, but you had a beeper or you, or whoever called you first is the one that got you in for the audition, right? Whichever agent. Yeah. And well, nobody called. So my mom is calling them going, come on, you got to, she can do this. And uh, finally one agency submits me and I go in and I have the call. I go in and they come back out and they say, is uh, Laura Bell Bundy's mother here? And, you know, my mom stands up. I'm Laura Bell Bundy's mother. And I said, well, we would like, we have a callback for her. We'd like her to come back. Oh my God. Was she ever gloating? Did she <laughs> never not take no for an answer ever again? And, um, and my audition song was, you got to have heart from damn Yankees. And when, th- during that audition, uh, the musical director came out. Not only did I have the, they tell me that I have the callback. The musical director came to talk to my mom and said, Hey, I'm developing. I said, whatever, whatever happens here, if she doesn't get this show, um, I'm developing another show. It's based on the bad seed. And I've been looking for a little girl like her, uh, for literally years. And so they exchanged information. But I ended up getting the show, but that led to Ruthless because that So Marvin show, Laird was the musical director of Radio City. That's wild. 
Yeah, it's all connected. It's always, always connected. Now, Ruthless was a really big moment. Obviously, it's a great musical. It's really well, it's really well constructed. And you got to originate the role of Tina in that show, which, you know, very famously, Britney Spears and Natalie Portman were your understudies, which we'll talk about in a hot second. But Mm -hmm. um, creating this role in Ruthless had to feel like a really exciting moment where the show was kind of being written around you and you were being part of the creation of what the licensed version is and what it is today. What do you remember about sort of workshopping that musical? Well, it started out being really a musical version of The Bad Seed. And so I learned, I watched that movie, um, again, mimicking that character and then musicalizing it. But really, Joel Paley, who was the writer of the show, and, and Marvin Laird, who wrote the music, kind of really showed me the way. I said, I believe. I was spoon-fed comedic timing by Joel Paley. Yes. That he showed me. Well, he me- is every one of those characters. <laughs> yes, So yes. that's sort of, it's just like in him. <laughs> and I remember, you know, throughout the process, we did one reading. Then they couldn't get the rights to do uh, the bad, bad seed. seed. Yeah. But we did a whole workshop. And I remember like diff- many different workshop incarnations and watching how Joel worked in this sort of kinetic, um, high energy, masterful way and showing me what to do and how to deliver and how to hold my body and what was it. And then when I did it and him laughing and then starting to figure out the rhythm and, um, and then when it changed to Ruthless, it became you know, really a show that was less of a movie, uh, you know, a musical interpretation of a film and more of like this campy John Waters-esque, you know, musical that was pulling from references from The Bad Seed and from Gypsy and All About Eve. So I had to watch all these things. You know, I had to watch all these Con- things. Confirming your place as a gay man in, in the <laughs> world. <laughs> exactly. I am like a 10-year-old girl <laughs> and I knew every line of Gypsy and All About Eve. Which will come and- in handy soon, <laughs> at least the Gypsy part. Uh. And then and then the girl, you know, the girl that uh, that is, uh, uh, what was I about to say? I'm having a, oh, the character that I played. The character I play is a little girl who kills another little girl for a part of play. Comedy. The course. lead mother. The lead. Yes. Not just any part mother, the lead. Tina, you killed a little girl. Do you know what that means? <laughs> means I'm playing Peppy. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> and, um, you know, that experience of was the first experience I had really with sort of, you know, true connection with an audience and knowing if just like the slightest head turn on a line got a bigger laugh or the more sincere delivery landed better or I mean it's like a full college education you know that you cannot actually put a price on you cannot there is something about the experience and I'm also working with these like Donna English was freaking brilliant she had like a melt an emotional meltdown every night on stage and Susan Manser um and Joanne Baum were just two of the most hilarious people I've ever met in my life. And, uh, and Joel Vig was just like the hardest working person and also hilarious. And, 
uh, Denise Lohr. I mean, they were all brilliant. I was surrounded by all of these brilliant actors and comedians. And um, again, it was just another moment where I just absorbed everything and became like a sponge to that experience. And it was so much fun. It's so great. Now, the, now to have Brittany and Natalie, no one knew who these people were yet. Um, no. So you were just three kids doing a show where you were playing the lead. Was there like competition within the three or were they cool? Like, what do you remember about that? Cause that can get very sticky with parents and kids and one's a star and two are waiting in the wings. And Well, Brittany and Natalie were never there at the same, same moment. Time. I think they actually might've had a week or two of overlap. Mm-hmm. Like, like Brittany, Brittany uh, was the original it. cover, right? There was another girl before named Priscilla Bainey and, um, and actually she had done the Miss Pee Wee Hemisphere pageant with me. <laughs> Everything comes back to Pee Wee Hemisphere. It, it does. And so then it was Brittany and Brittany was the only person that I remember ever going on for me, uh, when I was doing a, a movie, but really I just remember Brittany, um, and not, and not being there with Natalie. It was never really like, so she was there. Her mom was there with her sister. I remember being in a stroller, but because I was doing eight shows a week and I was never there for really rehearsals or anything, I just came in to do my show after school Mm -hmm. and then went home. So there was a little bit of like, I think our moms talked a lot because they would stand in the back and watch the show. And my mom would stand in the back too. And I think they had a very friendly relationship They're Both moms are from the South and they're from Louisiana. And, um, and you know, my mom says she's got memories of like, they didn't have enough money to catch a cab home. And it was like, they were going to take a subway and it was like the Rodney King riots were going on. And, and so my mom gave the money (laughs) for a cab, you know, and it's like, oh my God, the, you know, if they only knew, (laughs) but it's so wild to see where, Will that star ascend and what has happened since I'm sure feels like out of body. Yeah. And I think in my mind, you know, and just from us being in the same place at the same time as young children and knowing what a sweet child she was and actually very talented and had a really strong belt voice that ended up becoming changed into this sort of glottal fry pop singing (laughs) voice. Um, I have, I feel very protective. Um, and I've, I've been asked a lot, like, oh, will you be involved in this Britney documentary? And I, I always sort of say no, but I feel like now, I think it's really important. And I think people are realizing this, but I've always felt this way. We make the majority of our mistakes when we're teenagers and mm-hmm. we're young adults. And those mistakes inform our character and how we live our life, they are necessary. And to live your life where you're making your mistakes in the public eye and you're scrutinized for just living as a human being from living and growing stunts your growth. And it can make you, there was nothing mentally going on with Britney Spears as a child. Mm -hmm. She was 100% completely present and normal. But when you put a person into a situation at a young age and you steal their youth from them and you make them a brand and you and you use them for money, you've you've kept them in this sort of 
place where they can't mature and they can't have independence. Independence is necessary for growth. I, uh, the whole situation make, makes me feel really ill and, um, I can't get to her, but if I could, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad to see. Um, and I hope that there, it seems like maybe the clouds are lifting a little bit and hopefully some good things will come that way, but we're getting back, back to LBB. So we have this huge ruthless moment. Did so many doors start to open because of that performance? I would imagine you were getting lots of appointments for things. You went on to do like a ton of movies right after that. It feels like was there, could you feel like, Oh, this has really shifted how people are seeing me in the industry? Yeah, I got, I, I had more opportunities to audition for things. Um, I, I auditioned for my first film, which was the adventures of Huck Finn, which I did. And that's when that film. And when I did life with Mikey, which, which is like one of my favorite movies of all time, (laughs) which happened very shortly after. Um, so I did both of those films and that's when Brittany came in to cover me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, I did notice like a little bit of a, a change. I started to, I, I got different agents and then there were more film opportunities that came to the table. And, more and you got television. to do Jumanji, which was such a big yeah. deal. That's a huge movie to be a part of. How old were yeah. you then? Like 13? I was 13. I, tr- I Yeah, I was 13. Wild. And were you guys staying in New York or did you move back? What, what wound up happening after Ruthless was over? So when we were... So we, I was 12. I, the 12, when I was 12 was the only time we left New York. Uh, I did a tour of the sound of music with Marie Osmond. Oh my God. When I was on that tour, I, we stopped in LA for three weeks. That's when I auditioned for Jumanji. Got it. And then the next year we went back to New York for my eighth grade year. And, uh, right after my eighth grade year, we moved back to Kentucky. I was going to go to high school and have like, a quote unquote normal life. <laughs> I don't know how you can have a normal life after you've done your first gay pride parade in 10. Okay. <laughs> but, but I did. And I was trying to acclimate back into this sort of, you know, Kentucky society, but you know, there was a lot of small mindedness and my mind had been opened and completely expanded. And, um, in so many ways, but I really, really enjoyed my normal high school life and I played sports and I did the school play and okay what was school play did you do well I did a few um so I did pajama game great and grease and damn yankees this podcast is sponsored by ramp are you the decision maker in your company consider this for the first time in decades there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. 
Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so then after high school is when you came back, and that's when, like, Guiding Light happened and Gypsy at Paper Mill, and is that kind of the Actually, Gypsy, Gypsy at Paper Mill ended up happening while I was a senior in high school. So the summer before... Um, my senior year, I spent it in New York and I, I auditioned for gypsy and that, uh, and so I had to spend like my first two months of school. Well, what a fun, what a fun way to do it. Betty Buckley as Mara Rose, which I'm sure was a terrifying experience for everybody. No, uh, not for me. Good. <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you, tell me, I've never seen a better mama Rose. I believe it. Um, I've never watch someone from the wings every night going like, just, I was in awe. Like she was so emotionally connected and just like anything could happen. Like one night she just like, she was like, mama talking. And she just took her pearls and ripped them. And the pearls went everywhere. Of course the crew's freaking out because because they're going into like (gasps) automation. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, but I did that show with Joe Mahoda, who's gone on to become a CAA agent now, but he was my Tulsa. And we would stand because the curtain call was right after that. You know, we had gone off and got married. So we didn't do anything <laughs> in the second act except for come backstage and watch, watch Betty do Rose's turn. And again, a masterclass. I learned so much from the people I was surrounded with. And I was like, that's it. That's amazing. That, that show should, did you guys think that show would come in to Broadway? I think everybody did think it would. Uh, well, you had think, Debbie Gibson, my queen, Debbie Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> Deborah. Deborah then, but now back to Debbie now. Oh, she's um, back to Debbie. She's okay. back to Debbie. She released an album today. Congratulations, Debbie Gibson. <gasps> oh my gosh. Um, okay. We have so much to talk about. Not a lot of time. So Guiding Light kind of maybe leads to Hairspray. Is that maybe what the trajectory is there? Well, it, it didn't lead to it. But, it just sort of overlapped. Okay. So, you know, I, I applied to go to college at NYU. I got accepted. I wasn't going to school for um, theater. I was going to school for sociology, psychology. That's what it ended up being. Smarty. And I was going to run track at NYU because I had run track in high school. I was going to run track and cross country at NYU. And, um, but I got this soap opera right before I started and I had to make a decision. Like, you know, maybe I go to school part-time, but if I go to school part-time, I can't run on the team. And if I don't run on the team, I don't get this like academic athletic scholarship that I had. So I decided to defer and, uh, and I went and I did guiding light for two years in the first year that I did it, there was an audition, um, Bernie Telsey's office. Uh, now Bernie had seen me do ruthless (laughs) and I had also done a workshop of, uh, a movie called camp before it was a movie when they were trying to figure it out. And I played <laughs> the villain, Great. AKA the B. And, uh, 
And so this character of Amber Von Tussle was very much like both Tina Denmark and this character I'd played in camp. So uh, they had me come in to audition. What they did not know is that when I was eight years old and the summer I was eight living in what we called the rat hole in New York that summer, um, I literally watched Hairspray every day. Like I loved the movie so much. And my favorite character was Amber Von Dussel. So, uh, so I auditioned for the first official reading of Hairspray. There was only one act and I happened to be off from the soap opera that week, which was crazy. So I was able to do it. And, um, then we did a, a course of four readings and I was like doing the soap opera at the same time. And then finally I ended up leaving the soap opera and, uh, we did our final reading and did you know that it would it would be such a big hit and would change kind of the course of your career? I didn't know it would change the course of my career. I knew it was going to be a hit. Yeah. I mean the second I heard that music, I mean what it did to my body internally. Yeah, like, I'll never boom, forget seeing boom, that show the, for the first time. It was like it felt like an experience that just doesn't have it comes along every couple decades that something feels so universally loved and it's truly exciting to be in the audience. You know, you feel special to have seen that original cast. Um, you were all so brilliant. We all felt, we all as a cast knew we are a part of something here that is very special. And I was like, do you think like it doesn't get better than this? Like maybe... <laughs> Maybe this is it. <laughs> like everybody's first Broadway show is going to be their best one. Um, but it was just, and we were all young and we had so much energy. And, you know, I always say like a Jerry Mitchell show wasn't always your, it was Rob Marshall at first. And then it ended up, Rob was doing Chicago, the film and Jack O'Brien came on to direct and Jerry to choreograph. But there's something about a Jerry Mitchell show. And the cast that Jerry Mitchell casts people that have a very similar energy and a vibration and a, and a, and a enthusiasm. And so you had all these people that had this same like energy and enthusiasm and can do and like sense of fun. I mean, I, I never had more fun in my life. Oh, it was so, it's so, so exciting. And then leaving Hairspray was, so was, then you went to Wicked to go kind of hang out for Kristen Chenoweth. Is that, was that the next thing? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was no, now there's always yeah. a standby for Glinda, but there wasn't when you started that, right? No. So the show, I was, I had left Hairspray and I was kind of think, you know, I had done a pilot in LA and I thought I was going to spend time in LA and I was kind of going back and forth. And, uh, I got a call that they were looking to have like an official standby for Kristen, but the show was already in previews and it was opening like the next week. So I went to see one of the previews and I, uh, I agreed to come in an audition. And then, then I think the show, th then they offered me the part, the show opened, it had opening night. And then I started like, a week or so after that. Um, but Kristen had a, um, she had movies she was doing and she had Candide she was doing at city center that she had committed to. So it, it was already built in. They knew she was going to be gone for a few weeks. And, um, and then they just wanted to have somebody that was a standby for Elphaba and a standby for, uh, Glinda. And, and so 
you know, that's what I did. It also seems out. like a pretty good follow-up to Hairspray. Like, what can I do that is even a bigger crowd pleaser? Like, is that even possible? And then here we are coming down in a bubble. Um, right. I'm sure it was like a very fun experience for you. And if it wasn't, then, <laughs> right. No, it was. It was a really challenging experience. I think what was challenging about it is I come from this show that was the biggest hit of the year before. And it and I was playing one of the main characters to then going and sitting in a dressing room. And chilling all out. Day, yeah, and chilling out. And that was hard for a 22-year-old, 22, 23-year-old. And um, But it was also such a, an amazing, important thing for me to do because it kept my ego in check. And it also showed me that the hardest job on Broadway is to be a standby or an understudy and even harder is a swing. I don't know how to do that. I never will be able to do that. That is the job that should be paid the most. Absolutely. These people know like everyone's parts (laughs) and I don't, my brain does not work like that. And, um, but it was, you know, it's just this thing where like you really get close to all your fear. Cause the very first time I went in the bubble, it was when I was going on terrifying. And I found out like an hour before the curtain went up, I was going on for the first time. And I was at H and M buying clothes down the street at seven o'clock and, you know, thinking I'm headed back to the theater for seven thirty half hour. And I'm going to order some food and, you know, read my book. And they're like, Nope, you're on. you're on. And what do you remember most about that night? Well, I felt like I had to poop. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you got through. No, no, no. No, I, I was just sort of, I was just, I remember like getting the call and being at the H&M and just like throwing all my things on the floor and running out oh and, and, to, and just running up and grabbing all my stuff and everybody coming in. And, it, you know, I had to, you know, when you are a cover, you go into the dressing room of the person who normally plays the part. So I'm in Kristen's dressing room. And I'm putting my makeup there and I'm trying to warm up and vocalize as this is, you know, very high opera soprano and the hair people and costume people are rushing in and making sure. And it was just like this crazy thing. And I, it was just, I, I was, I felt like I was out of my body. And then we, then they lifted me onto this bubble and the bubble was made for Kristen. Kristen is a half foot shorter than me. (laughs) And so I'm bending my knees and leaning out. And the only thing holding me is like this little. Little hook strap. Hook, thing. Yeah. A hook. Oh my God. And, and I'm looking down and I, all I remember is like, oh my God, I'm in a bubble. There's I'm like, I, I don't even, can't believe I remembered the lines. And the other thing that you don't realize is when you rehearse this, when you rehearse, when you were an understudy, you have understudy rehearsal. And so the only people you're working with are the other people who are the understudies, not the people who are on stage. So you're like, I've never seen some of these people. <laughs> right. And also there's, like, you. Yeah. there's like five people in understudy rehearsal. There's like <laughs> 30 people on stage. <laughs> so all you know, is like the number you're supposed to be on. And it's that gentle sort of like, everybody was just like, you say push with back. love or whatever. Push with love. Yes. Yeah. Guide with love, pushing me into the right spots. And so it was all like, I just remember like seeing all these people's faces and the lights are so bright. You don't, you don't do 
like a tech rehearsal yeah. when you're an understudy. You barely have a put in, you know. It was crazy. Crazy. But I'm sure it prepared you for your next experience, which is the one of the greatest roles ever written for a woman, which is Elle Woods and Legally Blonde, which I'm sure like just bringing it up might give you like some sort of palpitation of like, I've never seen anyone work harder and do more in two and a half hours than you in that show. It was, we need to go back in time and give you every award that ever existed for that performance. What, uh, while creating that, it must, must feel like the stuff of theater kid dreams, like to want to do this thing for a living and then get to originate this huge show in this iconic role must have felt like this huge win for you. It absolutely was a dream come true. Yeah. And I remember I had kind of put it out there. Like after I left Wicked, I was like, I'm not coming back to New York until I'm originating a leading role on Broadway. And, and there you go. <laughs> it would have, you know, it ended up and I began to develop Legally Blonde, the very same way of Hairspray, you know, readings, two readings in a workshop. And, you know, you, you know, you don't even know you have the, you, it, the job is not officially offered to you when you do these yeah. things. You just, you just work for free and hope that they like you and the whole, you know, week you're working is an audition basically. And so, but I just had this feeling, you know, sometimes you have a feeling about a role. I felt so connected to her on so many levels. Um, I think we, uh, we both sort of have our pop. We think the best of people initially until they give us a reason not to. And even then still, we think there's a possibility for goodness and, and we're positive thinking and we have can do spirit and I was raised in the South where you're, you're friendly and you're kind to people and you kill them with kindness, <laughs> you know, right? And so was Reese Witherspoon. She was raised three and a half hours away from where I was raised. And I think that there was something about our essences in this role and how we were raised and the way we could emulate uh this character of Elle Woods very similarly, but it just felt like a very, very natural, very natural. It doesn't happen a lot where bit. someone takes a role that is made so iconic in a film and really is able to make it their own. And I feel like you were, that was like the greatest gift you could give that show is that it didn't feel like you were playing Reese Witherspoon and Legally Blonde. Like you were your own Elle Woods. It was like a very special performance that also had like, huge fan craziness. Like we, that does not happen all the time either. So how did you deal with sort of all of that, uh, stage doorness and people dressing up like Elle Woods and the young girl of all of it must've been quite daunting. Well, I, I, you know, that was kind of amusing, yeah. you know? Um, and I, and you know, I, I appreciated the love and enthusiasm for the show. Um, I think what was hard for me was maintaining uh, the amount of energy. I wouldn't say it was energy, but the maintenance I had to do on my body and my voice to be able to do that show full out 150% every night. I don't know how to mark. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know how to hold that. That's best for the audience. (laughs) Um, But, and and I go, I feel like, and I also believe that when someone comes to see a Broadway show and pays that much money for a ticket, that they need to get my 150%. And so I think there were moments where I had hit the wall and gone through the wall and I did not know that I had. Mm -hmm. And I just came on the other side, like all bruised up and was like, oh, whoa. I did not know my limits. Um, And that would be the only thing that was difficult about those stage door moments, because there were moments where when the end the show came down, I needed to close the door, shut the lights off and rest in order to do the next marathon show. Yeah. Yeah. And now but you, I didn't. You, I know you kept going. Uh, you did the stage door. You kept going. You got your first Tony nomination, which I'm sure is every little kid's dream. And with the greatest company ever, Christine Embersaw, Audrey McDonald, Deborah Monk, Donna Murphy, and you, that's, that's pretty good company. Was that experience so mind boggling? I, again, out of body, I died. Cause there was also, you know, Stephanie Block had done pirate uh, queen that year, Kristen Chenoweth had done apple tree. I was like, there's no way. I mean, not with these Queens was I going to, uh, get it. So I, I was like, well, that would be great. But when it happened, I, I, and I was the first to be announced. Right. So I didn't hear anybody else. Got announced <laughs> because I was I was just screaming and like, oh, I was totally by myself too. I was alone in my apartment. That's like meant to be sometimes, like that you have to experience that in your own little bubble. And you can't, you're no, no one's with you. So there's like, you're not, you're like, can I get excited? Cause I'm, should I jump on the couch? <laughs> you know, should, what? And then I think I got a phone call from Christian Borel. That was maybe my first call or maybe my mom. I don't remember. One of the two was like, <laughs> it's happening. Um, it was yeah. a very thrilling performance and I'm so glad it lives on in the MTV filming, which so everyone can see it. Have you watched it at all? Like ever? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. We, we watched it when it came out. Yeah. I think we had like a screen. You had not, have you, you've not watched it like in in recent times. No, no. It's real good. You should give it a little <laughs> touch, touch back down on it. Um, it was a great show and you're brilliant in it. And, uh, I, I'm so glad that that show started kind of existed when Broadway workshop started, because I think that was like a great time for young people to get interested in performing. And it really is the catalyst. I mean, who has not done legally bond at their school or community theater or somewhere. I mean, it, it's such a, such a huge show. And I think without your performance, I don't know if it would have gone on to that level of excitement. So Bravo. You live on forever with your Legally Blonde moment. Um, all right. Well, we have to talk about your albums and we have to do quick fire. So here we go. Um, your most recent album. You're, you're okay. You don't need oh, to you're okay? Okay. 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 Yeah. All right. Well, mm-hmm. I'm like, I've, I've done a very big Laura Bell Bundy deep dive on the music this week. <laughs> and I'm obsessed with your new album, Woman of Tomorrow, which feels like if Rosemary Clooney released an album today, that's what it would be. Like if she was your age. Do you know what I mean? It feels like... <laughs> Uh, a young person's like view of what this music would evolve to. It, it's so genius. So tell me about how you sort of came up with this idea to sort of kind of spin this old school music and make it feel modern and contemporary. It's really a, an incredible album. Congratulations. Thank you. So the concept is really double standards. 
the double standards that we face as women. And then we're taking this style of like a jazz standard and we're adding modern elements and we're doubling it down on it um, while we talk about the double standards that we face as women. So it sounds like this classic MGM movie musical um, that occasionally has some beats in it and some modern pop production. Um, but the subject matter is modern. And, um, and there's, you know, it's called women of tomorrow, which is like when you go to Disney <laughs> world and it's like tomorrow land, yeah. it's like what they thought in the fifties and sixties, the future would look like. So there's sort of, it's, it's got, it's like high concept. No, are these all your, I mean, all of your albums really have such a strong point of view, all of your videos, all of your live performances. I mean, everything is like a performance blown up. Like you don't do anything simply, which is what I think is really exciting about you. Um, how much of this does all your input is someone else sort of guiding these big ideas? No, it's me. Um, I felt really empowered, uh, to sort of speak out after the 2016 election, I felt the double standard was quite glaring. And I dove into um, researching women's rights, women's history. And I did an event that was like a women's march, but a concert in New York City called Double Standards in 2017. Sarah Bareilles was in it, Rosie O'Donnell, um, God, Anna, Anna Gastower, Jesse Mueller, um, Adrian Warren, and it was the whole concept was two women coming together to sing a duet on a jazz standard, all in the name of women's rights and women's health. And in doing that, I uncovered so many things. Like it wasn't until 1974 that a woman could open a credit card or take out a bank loan without the permission of her father or husband. 1974. That does not feel like that long ago. I mean, I know it is, but it's not really. And there was a lot, you know, one to this day, one out of one in five, uh, one in five women experience domestic abuse in their lifetime and sexual assault. We have, we have some issues that really need to be addressed that we ignore. And it's really important for women to understand the origin of that. So I became really passionate about it and, one of the things I did was create a women's history sketch comedy television show that I sold and wrote for Freeform um, that's, you know, kind of still brewing. And then do this album uh, after that concert was to make an album. And instead of just doing standards, uh, I'm a songwriter. I wanted to write original songs. So I got together with a uh, with a producer and composer that I have worked with before, Jeremy Edelman, and my good friend, Shay Carter, who is like a brilliant poet and activist. And we wrote these songs where each one sort of delves into these different specific either issues or experiences of what it means to be a woman. And um, we have songs about equal pay and a women's value and uh, money we have songs about called with song called I'm sick of saying sorry, which is all about women apologizing and over apologizing. And we have a song called digital disease, which is our obsession with social media. We have uh, a song called American girl, which deals with consumerism. And the reality is that women, women are 80% of the consumers in the world. 
women do 80% of that consuming. So women keep getting these images of this is the life you want. This is the life you want. You will not have this life without these shoes and this body and this picket fence and that ring and that wedding and this stuff that's going to cost you money and put you in debt. And yet you're not paid equally. And, um, and, and you also taxed additionally on uh, products that are for women simply because a razor is pink. People do not know about the pink tax. It's like, that is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Women will pay more for a toiletry than men. Um, and they're taxed extra. They're taxed on, you know, it should not be a tax on tampons. You're welcome. The w- Women have a period every month so that we can have a human race. You're welcome for that. You're welcome for your existence. Everybody came from a woman. Thanks, Don't Mom. tax a tampon. Don't tax a tampon. Yeah. Great. Uh, uh, thank you for so coming to my TED Talk. I, I, became, <laughs> I became obviously very passionate about this. No, so, yes. it's, and you found a way to tell these stories in, a, in the most creative way humanly possible. I think it's much easier for me to sit here and talk about this. I sound like I'm preaching. If you listen to the album, you can enjoy it. You can cook to it. You can drive to it and go, oh, wow, I think I learned something. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's something I hadn't thought about. Um, and I think that I, I believe in activism through artistry. I think that what is what Broadway is? The stories that we tell, the songs that we write that hold these implicit truths, that talk about the issues, it's so much easier to hear from an audience perspective when they are personalized and they sound beautiful. Mm -hmm. You'd rather me sing at you than yell at you, right? Any day. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, it sounds like I'm just belting through the rafters, but my insides are screaming, but it just sounds pretty when it comes out, Uh you know? And I think there's something about that we have, and this was a very inspiring quote to me that guided my entire process in developing the album was uh, Nina Simone saying, an artist's duty is to reflect the times. And she was a jazz singer who was very very focused on social justice and, and rights for the black community. And she was incredible. This is a a brilliant um, jazz artist, very eclectic and had was like singing multi styles, but that was her purpose. And I, I've, after I've heard that and after I've gone down this route, almost everything else seems very silly to me. Like, if I'm not going to say something in this song that could be thoughtful and profound, why am I saying anything at all? Why am I writing the song at all? You know, there, <laughs> you know, I, that's just where I am now. I think I'll come out of that eventually and write a love song. But, <laughs> um, but even in love songs, there's something to say. But there's a lot to say right now. And people definitely feel like uh, that we are becoming more conscious community and thoughtful people as a whole. And there's a change in our thinking as a whole. And I think artists have the ability to kickstart the conversation in a way that people want to listen. And you also have a podcast that goes along with the album called Women of Tomorrow that's available on this network, on the Broadway, yes. po- on the network, um, Broadway Podcast Network, which is amazing. And there's like 10 episodes that are out now. Is there, will there be more of that? Yes, we, we, uh, 
we do a combination of of delving deeper into each song. So there's only so much you can talk about yeah, yeah. in a three and a half, four minute song about an issue. So we will go in and talk about the history of why women apologize. And, uh, and then we will have a guest coming on that is an expert in it and talks about how it affects us today. And then we sort of discuss solutions um, of how to move forward. And the podcast is a deeper dive into every song and issue. And then we also cover like Mother's Day and Father's <laughs> Day, and we'll go into the history of women and Mother's Day. And, um, or uh, we covered, um, uh, we'll, we'll cover Women's History Month and go into uh, a couple of women in history you should know about and things in women's history you should know about. We just had an episode um, connected to the Repro Film Fest, which is a film fe- a film festival completely dedicated to um, reproductive health and stories about women's uh, w- women, whether they be childbirth, postpartum, um, endometriosis, um, menopause, abortion, whatever. And it personalizes all of these issues while educating. And we thought that was a really interesting thing to cover. And then we go into the history of birth control, the history of abortion, which, by the way, was legal until 1860 in the United States. Um, Yeah. And um, the main this is my favorite. The main form of birth control during the Great Depression was Lysol. Oh, oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because birth control was actually not legal. Oh because of the Comstock laws, until 1965, any form of birth control was not legal to be advertised. Um, talking about women's reproductive system in any sort of printed materials that were sent through the mail was actually illegal. This is so, wild. And I, I think a lot of people probably do not know this. So they should be listening to your podcast and uh, really listening to these songs and get, getting all of that in. Wow. Um, all right. So... I, I need to look back at this wild career that started when you're just a little kid and you're hundreds of episodes of television shows. Like I didn't even get to mention the hun- like literally hundreds of shows you've been on, obviously all these Broadway shows, the, the stuff you're writing and selling. When you look back at it, how much of who you are today is really based on that little girl who started out? You know, how much does that affect what you are doing now? Well, I think it's interesting as a little child, I had to grow up fast and be a professional in an adult world. And what happened to me when I was an adult is I went back to find. Oh, it makes me emotional. I went back to find the little girl. Yeah. And was like, hey, you know, let's get close again. Let me find out what you want. And that spirit of play that, you know, the dolls you left in your room because you had to do eight shows a week. And that little girl was there the whole, whole time. (laughs) Didn't expect this. She was there the whole time playing through these characters and becoming these people playing pretend on stage. But as an adult, I've gone back to finding my inner child and respecting my authentic self that was, um, 
I, I don't necessarily know. There was a lot of the talent that was harnessed and I'm so grateful for, but there were things I missed as a child because I was working. Yeah. And, um, and so now I respect the little girl and when she wants to play and when she wants to go ride a bike and do a hike and when she doesn't want to work and when she just wants to sing and play and write a song and to keep that spirit alive. So I think that, um, I, I am more her now and we found each other. So everything I do is in a spirit of play and heart and, um, and joy. And when I'm not aligned with that, I know something's off. And so I go back and I uncover why I'm not in that, in that space, because that, that is really where I, what I need to be honoring. So the little me is me. Yeah. I think that is so beautiful. And it's so great that you understand how to get, how, how you communicate can communicate with that little girl who, you know, kind of needs some attention in that way. And, um, I'm sure you're like the best mother ever too. <laughs> because we play. That. Yeah. We it's play. my opportunity to just be yes. silly. Okay. And we're doing- I'm reminded of it. <laughs> okay. We're going to do some quick fire questions and wrap up and cause you have to film a TV show. Um, all right. First audition song ever. You got to have heart. Okay. First Broadway show you saw we covered, but Starlight Express. Can answer me yes, of course. Something you have turned down that you had second thoughts about. Hold on. there. It is there. I just am not thinking about it. All right. We're going to move on. And okay. if it comes to okay. you, let okay. me know. Um, fill in the blank. Harvey Firestein is? Edna. Great. Uh, strangest fan interaction. Oh, oh. <laughs> this woman came to Legally Blonde and brought a dog and emotional support dog. And you're not allowed to have dogs because our dogs on the show will smell a dog. She sat right in the very front row. And they came down to say, Mammy can't have a dog. She said, I have an emotional support dog. And our dog trainer was freaking out, whatever. It was fine. But the beginning of the second act where, you know, Brooke Wyndham is doing whipped into shape and we're looking like we're watching it on the video. We see out of the corner of our eyes, it's like me, Kate Schindel, Richard Blake, <laughs> Natalie Joy Johnson, Christian, Michael Rupert, we're all standing there. We see this woman pull out a doggy wee-wee pad. Not a wee-wee pad. And her dog pees. No. In the front row of the of the, At the Palace Theater, Theater on Broadway. <laughs> while the show is going on. And then she comes backstage. No, sorry, sorry. She comes to the stage door. Okay. And refuses to leave before I meet her dog. I have to meet her dog. She demands that I meet her dog and I come out and she, when I come out, she literally, I think the dog was airborne threw the dog at me. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, okay. Very cute dog. So sweet. Thank you so much for coming to see the show. And I, what I wanted to say is like, lady, do you not know? Like, okay, you need an emotional support dog. That's fine. And, maybe, and it sounds like she really maybe, needed it. Maybe at, intermission, <laughs> maybe at intermission, take your dog out and go outside, but oh. not during the show. I mean, there were things like that all the time. If someone brought in a bucket of chicken after intermission from Popeye's. Oh, that happens like a lot, I think. <laughs> that, I think that happens 
often. Okay. Um, were you ever in Annie? I was in a local production of Annie when I was six. Okay. And I didn't get the part of Annie. I didn't get a part of an orphan. I was like some hobo <laughs> in a bag. <laughs> and my mom was like, they did that on purpose. Oh, you know, she was God. like, um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of what that, what that show, show is that you passed you know on. <laughs> I did. I passed on a TV show that was very, very, very funny because I, I had been asked to do honeymooners, which I saw with, at paper mill, which was so fun. And but pre-paper mill, there was all these plans to go to Broadway. Mm -hmm. And I had really missed doing Broadway. And I had not been available because of television shows or recording career. And I was excited to go back. So I turned down a screen test offer for this show. Sebastian was what it was called. It didn't go. All right. But I did have second thoughts because the guy is, you know, the comedian Sebastian. Sebastian, yeah, yeah. It's hysterical. Yeah. And the show was so I can't funny. believe that show didn't get picked up. That guy is like crazy like my mother's obsessed with him but i i was like uh was this the right move and the producer was greg garcia who had done my name is earl and is to me one of the most brilliant comedy television writers that exists and so i did go i think my agents and managers were like you know what well, yeah. you want to do what do you mean you don't want to do it? And I was like, I'm doing Broadway. <laughs> um, well, I sorry that didn't work out. But, but it, it worked, it out, it worked out. out. It, it work was out. fine. You know, these things I think you really do have to follow your gut. Like, you know, I think I hesitated on that question because I'm almost always following my gut. Good. That's that's I think that's the key. Okay. Um, who's your number one favorite Broadway leading man? <laughs> your eyes <laughs> my Does gut it, instinct was it, it, my gut instinct is christian borel all right we could say that um okay what role should patty lapone play in the lifetime movie of your life patty lapone my You're, mother great done um <laughs> can you name two real housewives I, I i can't name their names laura bell you're a classy lady um who is your favorite muppet Miss Piggy. Great. Um, what career things do you have in your home? Oh, like uh, like or awards like or something? an award or a costume or a. Oh, I have uh, my my uh, my framed. You've been nominated for a Tony Award <laughs> um, uh, on the wall, and uh, I have my rehearsal clothes from Legally Blonde and all the shoes I wore in the show. I love it. And I have all of my vocal tapes since the beginning of time. Wow. Um, that's Every a, vocal that's a lesson. podcast for, for something. I don't know. You could turn it into something. Lucille, Lucy, <laughs> like Lucille Ball has a podcast on Sirius XM right now, which is like, how's that possible? All these tapes that she made interviewing people that she never did anything with. And then like big little Lucy, like released it. It's so weird. Okay. We don't have time to talk That's about that. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's on serious. Um, all right. Um, have you ever seen a ghost? I think I thought I had experienced a ghost. I haven't seen a ghost. Okay. 
but I've had um, some like light flicker moments that were really Ghosty. weird. Have you seen the yeah. musical Ghost? <laughs> no, I've seen the film. Great. I've heard the songs. I've done ma- I've done master classes Where, with people who sang the songs. That sounds right. Um, okay, if you could go back in time and see any Broadway show, what would it be? Any year, any Broadway show. Oh, I feel like Ethel Merman and Gypsy. Yeah, that feels like a good one. Or like Mary Martin and Something. no, no, I have it. Okay. Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady. Good. She was robbed. robbed. She was robbed. She was robbed. And I love Julie Andrews. I feel like that was my first, you know, Julie Andrews and Judy Garland were like the first people I mimicked, you know, in singing. I love it. Um, and many, many young boys have done the exact same thing. Ugh. All right. We have two more questions. What movie can you watch over and over again? Um, Wizard of Oz, Sound of Music, uh, Big Business. I love Big Business. I love Big Business. I, we, I think this should, should be a, a musical? musical. All right. I, yes. I've always wanted to do that as a musical, it's... either with the Ink and Twins. All right. You know, yes. Brooke, or... and, Brooke, and, the, <laughs> Brooke, Brooke and, and the other Tiffany. one. <laughs> Brooke and Tiffany. Oh, I was fired. Or... Uh, I had talked about doing that with Leslie Kritzer, oh, where, Kritz. um, you know, one of us is the Bette Midler, one is the Lily Tomlin, and then we would alternate. Like, alternate, yes. yes. Very true, West of you. Okay, what advice do you have for young performers? Last question. You can use everything that happens in your life. You know, I think as people, we we avoid pain and we feel bad for ourselves when we feel it. And, um, we want to always get back to happy and normal. Well, when you're a performer, you're telling stories and there is no story without conflict. And thus there is no character without pain and there is no character without something they want. And if they want something, then that means they don't have something else. So we need to know what it feels like not to have what we want. We need to know what it feels like to experience pain. And we need to be able to know where that is in our bodies and where that comes up for us. Is that in, you know, is that, is that fluttering in our stomach or is that a, a deep, painful feeling in our heart? What is that? And then how can we recreate that on stage? So the avoidance of pain that we do in, in this life and in our culture, which we cover up with, you know, food or drink or, uh, you know, social media, distracting ourselves with something does not serve the artist, does not serve the actor. The actor has to live inside of those deeply felt emotions and understand them and dissect them because then, and only then can they play a fully realized character with depth that is going to connect to an audience that has also felt all of those things too. And if you don't care, they don't care. That is amazing acting advice. Uh, we ha- you have to come back and teach a class. Um, <laughs> tell the people where they can follow you and find out when your TV show comes out or when you're releasing the next song and all the things. Think the TV show is going to come out on Paramount Plus, so go ahead and sign up now <laughs> um, in January. <laughs> and uh, you can get Women of Tomorrow anywhere you get music, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. Um, and your other two and albums are also there. They're also there. And uh, my podcast is on the Broadway Podcast Network, Women of Tomorrow. Shout out. And you might learn a couple things. On that one. I'm lear- I've learned so much today. This was like, uh, this is a good one. And, and yeah. And then you can follow me on the Instagram. Instagram or TikTok at, or whatever else. It's always <laughs> at Laura Bell Bundy. 
I can't even keep up with all the social it's, media. It's too so much. I have such a love-hate relationship with it. I will like post, post, post like crazy. And then I will not post for two weeks. And then people like have to check in on you. Or, Are you okay? They don't. They don't. They, they know. know. They know. I mean, anybody who really knows me is knows. like, mm, she's just like being present with her <laughs> child, doing her thing. I you know. That. Laura Bobundi, it was such a dream to get to talk to you today. It's been a long time. I'm so glad you're doing so well and you're making magical things happen in the world. And I can't wait till we're in the same room together, which will, is bound to happen at some point. I know. I can't wait. We'll have to do another workshop. I would love that. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Laura Bell, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. This podcast is produced by Alan Seals, Dory Berenstein, and the Broadway Podcast Network and edited by Derek Gunther. For more information on the Little Me podcast, go to bpn.fm slash littleme. And follow me on Instagram at Mark Tuminelli or on Twitter at That Tuminelli. And for more information on workshops, classes, and everything Broadway Workshop, go to broadwayworkshop.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.